Welcome to Blackbird, episode number 34. My name is James, and today I am joined by the host of It's Too Late with Alan Mosley, Alan Mosley. Alan is the host of a libertarian-leaning late-night show, kind of modeled after Craig Ferguson or David Letterman or whoever's doing it these days. It's so much more unique than your kind of average podcast. Even your average you know, video show it's not like Tim Pool. It's certainly not like Zoom recordings where people are sitting in their dark offices with, you know, maybe a ring light reflecting in their glasses. It's polished and it's professional. And it's kind of everything that I think that amateur or semi-professional content creators online should aspire to be. So I wanted to interview him on that. We obviously get into a little bit of our libertarianism and also a lot about entrepreneurship and kind of making your own way in the world. And then Alan surprises me with a question at the end that I think you're going to appreciate my answer to as sort of a nuanced thinker. Before we get started, let me remind you again of Paloma Verde CBD. Carlos Abilar, who you will remember from this show, along with his wife, Vanessa, started Paloma Verde last year to be sort of the source for CBD products in their neighborhood in San Antonio. And of course, the COVID lockdowns made that not possible. So they went online and they're doing better than ever. I especially like their tincture. They even have dog treats and other products specifically formulated for your pets. So I have been giving my dog products for his anxiety, and he seems to be doing a lot better. I know in my neighborhood, we have lots of bangs and pops and loud noises that go off every night during the summer. And he has always been just stressed to the max, to the point where he's even just vibrating on the couch next to us. And he's been doing pretty well. So definitely go to PalomaVerdeCBD.com, look at the human products. But if you are a pet owner, also look at their pet products because I think that they will be able to help you out. More importantly, help out your furry friends. So that's PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Use offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout to get 25% off your order. And with that, here is my interview with Alan Mosley. All right, Alan Mosley, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, it's great to be here, James. Thanks for having me. Sure. So like we... We've been kind of running in the same circles for a few years now, and you've got this really unique podcast slash like late night show that I wanted to pick your brain about. And then, you know, just also kind of what it's like to be Alan Mosley. So before we get into it, though, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience so that they know who we're talking to? Sure. Uh, I'm Alan Mosley. I'm a uh, historian, author, uh, jazz musician, which that just that shows you what terrible life choices I make. <laughs> I, I go from being a jazz musician, which is a, a music that nobody listens to anymore, to uh, doing a, a late night independent show with uh, questionable political leanings, which of course nobody wants to listen to. So that's that. Th- those are those are my uh, life choices. Uh, but I'm I'm the host of It's Too Late with Alan Mosley, which is styled as a late night talk show primarily, and. Uh, so in, focusing more on entertainment, but of course, we can't help ourselves. We have to get into the news every now and then. That's awesome. And uh, Sherry Voluntary, is she your co-host or like just a frequent collaborator? Yeah, so she's, uh, I, well, I call her the stooge. She's, she is the, uh, 
the announcer slash producer of the show. So before, so for the for the majority of the runtime of the program, it was my good friend Blake Osborne, uh, and we actually filmed the show from Osborne Studio and Sound. And uh, and I, I don't want to get into Blake too much, but basically he's building a new studio and venue. And so for a for a period of time, uh, I've moved the show to a home studio and. Uh, I don't, so Blake was an excellent uh, stooge. He, you know, he laughed at my jokes. He got made fun of with uh, impunity and and could shrug it off. And because, you know, that's that's part of the late night shtick, right? And so I needed someone to take over Blake's position while he's under construction. And so the great Sherry Voluntary uh, assumed that mantle, God help her soul. <laughs> yeah, I and I love Sherry. I've been uh, Facebook friends with her and so on and so forth for, God, years and years, it seems like. So, why are you doing a late night show and not like just a zoom podcast where people can tune in whenever they want? I mean, obviously it's recorded so people can tune in whenever they want, but yeah. So, I mean, if, so people who have followed me for a long time know that the original show was the gold standard with Alan Mosley. And that was more a traditional podcast. We, we did have a little bit more fun, especially later on in the show as we sort of evolved and became more comfortable with what we were doing but it, it was it was the pretty stereotypical, you know, the show was just basically one flat segment and you have a lot of guests and you're talking about a lot of current events or or special interest sort of things. And there's not a lot of graphics, you know, not, you know, no commercial breaks, not a lot of bumpers and things like that. And and so if if so, if that's what you're looking for, that was the show for you at that time. Um, but for me, when we've. But when Blake and I started the show all the way back in the very beginning, one of the things we discussed was is that we 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 don't even like the word podcast because I mean, and and it's not that I'm like, oh, you know, look at you losers with your podcast. It's more that in in people's minds when they think podcast, they're thinking more like radio, right? You're thinking of two people sitting down with microphones, they're having a conversation. You just plop that into the recorder, you're done. That's a podcast, and that's and and that's what a lot of people do, and that's fine. But and we but we just wanted to do something more. We wanted to take a little bit more care. In in our presentation, we wanted to look. We wanted it to be a video centric program from day one. We wanted to look good. We wanted to sound good. Um, You know, we've had a lot of a lot of guests that are from a liberty type community. I know we've had guests that you and I have both had. So it's not that we shied away from that angle entirely, but we wanted it to be more entertaining. And and then as the show evolved into, well, let's just do a late night show. It's partly because I. I that's kind of a dream of mine. I, I love doing late night. Um, I was a big Craig Ferguson fan, oh, yeah. the late, late show with Craig Ferguson. Um, and, and I really liked him because his whole shtick was that he was deconstructing the late night platform. You know, he was a late night host, but he was also kind of mocking the genre at the same time. And so we kind of borrowed from that theme a little bit to do our own that, well, we're a late night show. But obviously, I'm not in the Ed Sullivan Theater, right? I'm not. I'm not Letterman, mm-hmm. and so let's do a late night show, but let's do it in our way and kind of make it our own a little bit. And so I feel like, as a casual viewer, if you tune into an episode, you get it, right? Like you get this is a late night show, but at the same time, you realize, but these are also people that are sort of flying by the seat of their pants too. But I, but <laughs> it, but in my mind, that's endearing, though, right? Like that's one of the reasons I love Craig Ferguson, and that's something that I try to do is that if you see my show, you can think on the one hand, wow. I mean, well, as, as you, like yourself, for instance, someone who does a program, you think, well, wow, they're putting a lot into the show. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you're like, but this is clearly not on TV, right? But that's, like I said, there's a certain, there's a certain endearing nature to someone who's trying and failing spectacularly. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. So did it cost a lot to start it? How did you do that? You, I mean, you're in a like real studio with a real backdrop and like real equipment. Like it just, yeah. it just looks so, uh, I mean, obviously, like you said, you're not on TV, but it looks like a real night show. Yeah, well, it's 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 one part having um, awesome friends and an awesome friend like Blake who um, has been who had worked in TV for a number of years as a producer and then opened his own studio and and said, "Hey, I believe in what you're doing, but don't just go." I mean, I was just going to go do a show in my closet with a can and string, right? Mm. And he said, "No, no, no, let's do a bigger show." And I said, "Okay, let's try a bigger show." So that was part of it. And the other part of it is, it's just the, the I guess, the uh, ingenuity of it, of saying, well, how can I, because we don't do green screens. And again, I'm not like, uh, people are going to be like, God, this asshole, you know, he thinks he's so much better <laughs> than everyone. It's not that I'm saying that that's bad for you if you like that. But for me, it was like, like you, if you go see Fallon or, or Letterman or Leno or, or Carson or whoever, like, you know, all of their stages are fake too, right? Like, you know that they're not literally sitting in front of a window over the city. You know that that's fake. Yeah. But, but you expect it. Like, that's part of the genre. And it doesn't bother, if anything, it would bother you if it wasn't there, even though you know it's not real. Like, I mean, when you watch a movie, you know the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park aren't real, but you do expect them to look a certain way. And so that's kind of how we do it is I, I went out and got the backdrop. And then, uh, you know, I was like, well, it's got to look, it's got to look like an office, right? So I got to, I got to do the faux window thing. And uh, so believe it or not, uh, a lot of the equipment we already had, it's, it's a lot of the same equipment we've used always. But as far as the stage and everything goes to make it really look late night, other than just having a desk and putting on a suit and tie, you know, and stuff like that is uh, I went out and got one of those, um, one of those dividers, like, you know, those like Japanese mm -hmm. dividers where you have them in the corner of the room, you see the sexy lady uh, undressing behind the divider. Yeah. I literally got one of those that has wooden panels and I literally just cut the fabric out and then set it in front of the backdrop and then did some uplighting and, you know, did some dimension work and stuff like that. And boom, there you are. It's late night. <laughs> That's what I thought. I was, I was actually just watching an episode and I noticed like that it looked real and I was like, oh man, how did he do that? And so I kind of surmised that it was a room divider. So kudos to me, I guess, for figuring that out. That's really cool. So like, uh, what kind of pre-work do you do? Do you script it? Do you uh, talk off the top of your head somewhere between? I feel like a lot of people, especially people who wear the kind of hat that you and I do, probably wrestle with this. And I, to this very yeah. day, wrestle with this, which is how much do you want the show to be organic on the fly? And how much of the show do you want to have scripted? Because scripted is a tricky word. I think when a lot of people hear scripted, they think, oh, this is, this, this is fake. This is pre-planned. It's not organic. I don't like it. But scripted is just a word. I mean, you, you can have show notes and say that that's in some sense scripted, but it's not like you're, it's not like you're literally writing out every single sentence you're going to read. Mm -hmm. So for our show, um, the monologues in terms of some of the gags we're going to do, like obviously the way we do the show is we actually do it very similar to Saturday Night Live in, in the sense of it's a, it's a single live take. My show's not edited, believe it or not. That is a show that was recorded from start to finish and the way you see it was the way we recorded it. So we do the commercial breaks live. We do the, the music live and all that stuff. But obviously that stuff has to be 
pre-programmed in. So some of the funny bits and like if it's a funny, the meme of the week and the viewer mail and, um, you know, if we're having a funny gag in the monologue that's going to have a visual aid, you know, those things are scripted in the sense of I've got my show notes. I say, oh, we're going to make fun of Hillary Clinton today. Oh, you know, Bill Clinton got caught with an intern. We're going to, you know, I have that in my notes. But I don't, but everything else, all of the conversation, everything, basically all the back and forth between me and Sherry or me and the guest, or when we get to the main news segments, we might use an article as just sort of the backdrop of what we're going to discuss today. But all of the thoughts are mine straight out of my head as it's happening. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how, what, what's, the, what's the process like for picking like what you're going to cover? Um, I, I feel like, in some ways, like even though I, I'm certainly far from a journalist, and this is one thing that I think um, I know a lot of people don't like John Stewart personally or politically, and I'm not saying I do either. But he was one thing he really was great at when he was doing The Daily Show was he could do funny stuff and he could do serious stuff. And if people thought he was not being serious enough, he would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur journalist. If people thought that he was not, if, if people thought that he was making too light of serious things, he would say, hey guys, I'm just a comedian. Yeah. So he, he kind of he had his cake and ate it too. And so I kind of took a little inspiration from that too. I was like, well, let's have, a, let's have some segments that were very clearly meant to be entertaining and, and lighthearted and get people into a good mood. Because one of the things, uh, one, another inspiration for doing the kind of show we do is you can just get so bogged down with everything going on in the world and just the constant rage porn, right? Like yeah. that's what, uh, and, and that's what a lot of people do. A lot of people's entire like public personas and content creation is look at what I'm mad about. And I just can't do that anymore, man. I'm like, like I can just feel the tumors growing in my brain <laughs> from just constantly being angry at the world. And so we try to have entire chunks of the show that are geared specifically towards entertainment. And then we have a couple of full feature link segments that are for something going on in the world, some news, some guest, whatever. And we try to keep those, in some sense, they're a little bit separate. So there's, there's kind of, you kind of have best of both worlds. But also in terms of, well, how do you pick the topic you want to cover? I feel like that, you know, newsrooms probably do this in that mm-hmm. you have your feature linked story, you have your human interest story, but you have lots of stories that get suggested and some of them make it and some of them don't. And for the ones that don't, we recycle those into funny little bits we just make fun of in the funny segments. And then the big stories that we feel like maybe are are, are very fruitful and also maybe not appropriate to just just disregard out of hand. Those are the ones that become the feature link segments. Got it. And are you like running a timer? Do you have it kind of scheduled yes. down to the minute? Yeah. So, so it's an hour long show. I mean, we do the show as if it were on TV mm-hmm. and, and we, and sometimes we're, you know, a couple of minutes fast. Sometimes we're a couple of minutes late, but um, generally speaking, we're, so we're doing it as a live take where in, in I'm, I'm watching my monitor as we're doing the show and, you know, the monologue's about 10-ish minutes. The view, meme of the week viewer mail's 10, 15-ish minutes. And then you have a couple of 12, 15-minute-ish, you know, main news segments. And then you have a finale. And then when you take those and you add all the commercial breaks in between, it should come out to about an hour. That's awesome. We try to make the show as if, like, you could plug this on TV and it would fit in the time slot. Have you thought about doing that? I wish. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it's... 
I, I've one of the talking about just the many inspirations for why we do the kind of show we do is is maybe I'm you know maybe I'm naive maybe this is just a pipe dream but in my mind I was thinking we want this to be a great show and I want people to enjoy it because I I mean if if people didn't enjoy it I wouldn't do it but at the same time we've always kind of looked higher that well if there was ever an opportunity that came along to get onto a big network, whether it were like an independent media or, or even bigger, I want my show to not have to be totally deconstructed and reconstructed in order to fit. Like our show is literally an hour time slot with commercial breaks built in. It's ready to go. If you, if you ran like an independent media network and said, Hey, we're, you know, we have a 24 hour cycle of TV. Can you fit a time slot? Like it's literally ready to plug. Man, you could be on like, uh, what's Cumia's network called? Not Gas Digital, but the one that Ma- Malice came from. God, I um, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, there. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of there's plenty of those of those networks that are mm-hmm. that are kind of potentials, I guess. Is cable access still a thing? Could you go the Wayne's World route, or do you not want to? Um, I don't know if I really want to. You know, the cable access thing is kind of really similar to a lot of terrestrial radio, which is, I mean, there's a handful of like major radio networks. And you think of like the big corporate, like you've got ESPN Sports, you've got Fox Radio, stuff like that. But in terms of just local radio stations across the country, nobody listens to that crap. I mean, most of them are just owned or affiliates of one of the major networks anyway. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those things just don't exist See, the goal, a lot of people don't realize the gold standard originally was a radio show. Oh, so WMRB okay. 910, a uh, radio station here in Middle Tennessee, um, which actually, ironically enough, it was also a sports station. It was one of those, it was a sports station, but since it was a sports station in, in a town that was owned by someone locally, um, they have, you know, three or four or five hours a day of local programming, you know, news, sports, weather, whatever. And then the rest of it is piped in from, you know, ESPN or something. And they had a weekly talk show called Get in the Game because, you know, sports. Mm-hmm. And but Get in the Game was it kind of had that sports feel, but they talked about issues rather than just, you know, teams and scores. And they invited me on as a guest a few times and said, hey, this is great. We should just just make you a permanent you know, some permanent sit-in guest or whatever. And they renamed it the gold standard. So that was the gold standard on radio. And then that evolved into my show. That's really cool. So uh, why did you change from the gold standard to it's too late? Um, so part, part of it is, is that the gold standard, again, like since the majority of its run was really more like a traditional podcast, and, but I was moving in the direction of I want to have fun. I wanna, I wanna have a wider array of guests. I wanna talk about pop culture sometime. I wanna talk about what I wanna talk about because I mean, it is my show after all. If I'm not gonna talk about what I wanna talk about on my show, I'm never going to, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, but that, that wasn't really what the gold standard was for you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 episodes. And so when we're in literally the last 10, 15 episodes of the show, I was sort of kind of already doing It's Too Late. It just didn't look like it and didn't sound like it yet, but I was all mentally, I was already there. And so part of it was, is that, well, I'm going to put the gold standard to bed. We're going to just say that this was a series and the series has concluded and look at all these great guests we had and look at all these big topics we covered. We'll, we'll just put a bow on that. 
And then I literally took a few weeks off to construct the show in, in OBS and in making, I may, making all the commercials and all the music and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we came back, it was, well, we're really, you know, nuts and bolts wise, it's really what we've always done. It's just got a different coat of paint on it. And it's more, it's more going in the direction of, of kind of free flowing entertainment and less of the feeling, feeling required almost to take whatever big topic the Liberty community is talking about okay. and give our two cents. I, I definitely, I will say this, and this is, and maybe this is advice for other people too. Just because something happens on earth doesn't mean you need to feel like you have to give the libertarian perspective <laughs> on it. Man, <laughs> from your mouth to God's ear. So that was, that was the end of the gold <laughs> standard right there. Yeah. So what do you think, what do you think of what's going on in New Hampshire? No, I'm just kidding. Don't answer that. God. Uh, no, 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 no. Let me, let me answer because it'll only take five seconds. Oh, I've good, told good. people my whole life, if I ever ran for anything in the LP, my platform would be to abolish the LP. So that answers that. <laughs> that's a, that's a good one. Actually, I've, uh, I've always thought the LP should have some sort of exit strategy because like, unlike other political parties, like they have a goal. So once that goal's reached, they've served their purpose. Mm-hmm. Cool. So speaking of, I guess, libertarianism, and I, I don't want to get your like origin story of how you became one because that's uh, sure. that's, that's tedious, but what is kind of your, I don't know, underlying worldview that determines, you know, what you're going to say about a particular story? Obviously libertarians don't march in lockstep. Um, sure. So I'd love to know kind of where you come from. So I'm definitely uh, more of an anarchist without adjectives. I feel like I know that there's people out there that'll say, well, I, I shy away from the word anarchism because that people who are uninformed, that scares them away from potentially hearing what I have to say. And of course, my answer is, is okay, bye. I don't, I don't care if they're scared by, oh no, a boogie word. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the type of person who's scared of anarchism is, is also going to be scared of libertarian, right? Like they're, yeah. they're, they're so outside of, out of, uh, of being informed that, that anything other than mainstream is going to be off-putting to them. But I've gotten to the point, I, I really don't even use the L word very much. I don't mm-hmm. say libertarian very often. If I'm, if I'm in a, a big social circle where I know that that's a common phrase that everyone has a mutual understanding of, then I will. But in general, I don't say libertarian a lot. And it's because there's so many people who identify as libertarians that I have nothing in common with. And I don't, and I don't want to. I don't want to have a community with those people. And so, that, so for people who are above level one or two on the ladder, I say, well, I'm just an anarchist. I, I lean a little bit more towards the agorist perspective, which is, and, and that really informs my, I don't get involved in politics. I don't vote. Um, I, I don't suggest anyone do so. Uh, I feel like any amount of time you spend in political activity is time that you could have spent uh, cultivating your own connections, entering into the black market, hiding your income and doing all those. Not that we would ever do that for our friends at the IRS. Right. No, 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 no. We would never do that. But but for people who do get that, do do that, um, any any headway you can make in avoiding the state is preferable in my mind to engaging with it. Yeah, and so, and then of course, you know, basic things like non-aggression principle and stuff like that. Though I'm not a pacifist, um, I I recently saw a little dust up between some different factions that were saying one saying that uh, political violence is is always wrong, and the other one saying it's not always wrong. <laughs> and, and I definitely lean towards nah, man. Uh, you know, 
don't, you know, that sometimes the kill dozer is necessary. Um, so, and, but I will say this, one of the things that I've gotten in trouble for a lot on my show is I've told people, most people don't have any principles at all. Mm-hmm. And, and people get mad when, I mean, I, I understand people are defensive. And so sometimes people will come back with, well, just because they don't agree with you doesn't mean they don't have principles. I say, no, 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 no. They don't have principles. The, the type of person who needs to take a hundred question political quiz where they have to sit down and really think deep and hard about every single issue affecting the world. Yeah. I'm, I'm more terrified of those people because they really are kind of this utilitarian standpoint of they really are just thinking, well, what would be the best thing for me right now for all of these things as opposed to, and if it, and if it takes them hours to fill out that quiz, that tells me they have no principles. Whereas a person of principle would have an a, a underlying foundation that helps to inform their judgment. And that type of person would answer that hundred question quiz in like 15 minutes. Right. Because you either you either have principles or you don't. I guess sometimes those questions are a little bit complicated though, especially if they're multiple choice and you're not able to give your own answer. Yeah. Well, that's that's when you just take the Robert Higgs route and just close the survey. Yeah, it's a dumb, it's a dumb quiz most of most of the time. And of course, you know, if you're coming at it from the agorist position, who cares what political, what politician you align with anyway? Yeah. Well, you know, you see, and I, I know this is like this entire interview is just subtweeting so many people in our <laughs> community, but but you see all these people that talk about um, unifying and talking about you know, bringing, bringing people around to a libertarian thought and, and what a libertarian society would look like and things like that. And it reminds me of my good friend, Mike Meharry, who's been on the show a bajillion times. We did sports ball together. We still work together on various projects. Um, he calls them LEOs. Of course, everyone knows law enforcement officers. He's talking about liberty enforcement officers. Oh, boy. And that you're going to have these liberty enforcement officers who they're all going to have a they're going to have a council and they're going to decide that this is the libertarian position on everything and then they're going to make make it that way. Yeah. And that it, to not see that that's like not even a half a step away from just where we are now is is naive. I feel like on a lot of people's parts. Yeah. Which, to be fair, agorists are as guilty of as anybody. Did you know that this podcast started out as an agorist show? I didn't know that you started out as an actor yeah, show. I like you went through a rebrand, although I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't do like a full thing. It's basically the same. The same RSS feed and all that because I was chicken to lose audience members. But uh, yeah, I started out as the Urban Agorist podcast, and what kind of changed my mind is that I. I started first of all. I, I started to run out of stuff to cover. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. obviously there's infinite black and gray market activities you can get into, and infinite philosophical just whatever you can talk about. But uh, I don't know. I kind of wanted to broaden it and make it not so centered around a particular like philosophy, I guess. And besides that, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how agorist I really am. I, I felt a little bit like a poser. I mean, I've got a little garden in my backyard, but that's about it really. So um, speaking of what, I mean, do you have a, do you like have a day job? Is this your, is this your full-time gig? Do you do other gig work? Is that top secret? <laughs> No, it's not really top secret. So I, you know, I'm somebody who does, who wears six, seven, eight, nine different hats mm-hmm. to avoid having to go work in a cubicle somewhere. Yeah. I think a lot um, of people can sympathize with yeah. that. Uh, so when I was younger, um, the first time I went to college, which tells you how college worked out for me, <laughs> uh, the first time I went to college, um, I was actually biology for pre-med. 
you want to talk about having gone a long distance from there. <laughs> and that was when I got into jazz and I started playing music and I started playing music instead of going to class. And so I dropped out of school and was playing music uh, predominantly. And it was shortly after that that I opened a printing company. And if you're wondering, well, how did you make the leap from that to that? It wasn't because I like went to bed dreaming about Photoshop. It was because that was just, I wanted to, I wanted to be a business owner and that was something the community needed. And so I just went into that business and I actually ran a business for six years and it, that ended up taking, well, actually it's more like seven years and that ended up taking most of my twenties. So most of my twenties were spent running this business. Mm. And then when I sold the business around 2013, yeah, 2013 uh, or start of 2014, um, I had kind of gotten into this mental place of, I just spent like a huge chunk of like my prime youth years, you know, working 18 hours a day, you know, getting a startup off the ground. And I didn't want to do that again. And I didn't want to just go work in an office for someone else's company. And so that's when I got into the, well, I'm going to write, I'm going to edit, I'm going to do, I'll do, I'll still do music from time to time. I'll do content creation. I'll do uh, audio video editing as well as uh, uh, literal editing. Um, I, I work with my friend, Blake, uh, the aforementioned Blake Osborne, that was my producer for all those years. Uh, so he and I, so I was actually the property manager of that studio at the same time as I was doing the doing the show there in the studio. And so I still do some work with Blake and he and I, when we're not in front of the camera, you know, ranting and doing silly things, uh, he owns a goat farm and also does goats and, and various other animals. And then I still work with him and us doing, taking this on the road and doing, doing other people's content, doing lighting, doing video, doing audio. We've done concerts, we've done weddings, we've done all sorts of things. And so that's what I do. So I, in, in some sense, it's like, well, I get a lot of practice with a lot of the tech and then I turn around and, you know, use it in my little cave every now and then. That's pretty cool. So what, like, if someone said to you, hey, I really like your life and would love to be just sort of a scattered gig worker rather than living my mm -hmm. 20s and 30s in a, in a cubicle, mm -hmm. how would you advise them to get started? Is it just get lucky and find someone who owns a TV studio or um, is there more to it? Well, so first of all, if someone said that to me, I'd say, bless your heart, which people <laughs> from the South understand that. Yeah. Um, and uh, second of all, it's, there's, there, the thing about entrepreneurship is, is that anytime you come across anyone who is looking for something, they want to, they want some type of good or service, you should have the attitude that your money is in their pocket. And so you want to provide them with whatever it is they need in order to get your money out of their pocket into yours. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and again, like when I was running a printing business, it was the same idea. The print, the, the fact that it was a printing business was irrelevant. It was just people, it was just finding people that required a service or a good and providing it for them to get money. And so with, with this, with, whether it's my show or, or doing work for other people, you know, I didn't go to school for, you know, I, I, I was a jazz musician when I was in school until I finally got a degree in history, which is about as, about as useful as, a, as playing music. And, and I didn't go to school for audio video or, or, or printing or graphic design for that matter in an in a earlier part of my life or, or, or anything. I, you know, th those are skills that I largely taught myself and, and mostly by doing. And 
and I feel like a lot of people out there are intimidated by the idea of being an entrepreneur. And maybe people who are a little bit later in life, maybe you're maybe you've got a uh, you're married, you've got a house full of kids, and you're thinking, well, I can't just I can't just you know proverbially throw away my whatever. A, a, a amount of money per year job yeah. to go pursue some dream. And I get that. Like, look, I get that a hundred percent. And so maybe for more for younger people than anybody, but, but, but anyone can do this. It's, I assure you that there is something your community needs, whether that's your community on the internet or whether that's your literal community geographically near you. I mean, how many of us have been driving around whatever town we live in saying, man, I wish we had a, you know, I wish we had this, man, where can I go to get this at this time or whatever? And there's a certain type of person that it just, the light bulb goes off and they say, well, why am I not doing that? Mm -hmm. And, and I can't tell you what that thing is for you, where you're at both in life or geographically or whatever. But I assure you that there's a multitude of things that fit that bill. And you don't have to have gone to school for it. You don't have to be an expert at it. You don't have to personally manufacture whatever that thing is. But that thing exists and you can find it. And you, you're becoming the person who provides that good or service doesn't mean that that's who you are. Like your identity isn't, I make the widgets. Your identity is, I'm an entrepreneur. Today, you might make those widgets. Tomorrow, you might make a different kind of widget. The, the type of widget was irrelevant. It was, you're an entrepreneur. Where do you fall on the debate of, you know, follow your passion versus follow what everybody wants? Um, so that's, that's a tough one because that's, I would never want to be the person to tell people to not follow whatever their passion is, but we're also people that believe very strongly in personal responsibility. Mm. So and everybody has different lifestyles. Like I I try not to judge people for what their lifestyle is. If you're the type of person that you live cheap and living cheap is comfortable to you, if you've got a roof over your head and food to eat, that's you're a happy person. If you can live cheap and that allows you to work part-time somewhere while, while spending the rest of your time pursuing that dream, then more power to you. Of course, again, if you're somebody who's got a house full of kids and it's just not practical for you to work the weekends at Arby's while you spend the rest of your week trying to be a libertarian podcaster, then obviously that's not the best decision for you. Yeah. But I, 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 my, my, my gut instinct is, is that way more people than currently are could be pursuing some type of passion project while still maintaining a comfortable life but it's, it's going to require some ingenuity and it's going to require a different type of work ethic than most people have. And, and again, I'm not trying to, I'm not looking down my nose at people, but, but let's be honest. Most people, most people don't have it in them to be entrepreneurs at all. Most people don't have it in them to open a business and, and you know, work 16, 18 hours a day until the business reaches a certain point of profitability and then they can take their foot off the gas a little bit. You know, most people need a paycheck. Most people need to go to work, clock in, clock out and get a paycheck. And most people, it would never even, like when I was running the printing business, I I would tell, people would come in, we would close at five, right? People would come in at 4.55, say, hey, can you do this enormous order for me and I'll pick it up in the morning. (laughs) Say, well, we close at 4.55. So the answer is, is how much money you got, by the way. The answer is not no. The answer is how much money you got. (laughs) And, and and, And that would work on some people. Some people would be like, here, 
I, I need it. So yeah. charge me what you want. And some people would say, how dare you? You're, you're, you know, you're, you're price gouging me. And, but the point is, is that I would, I would have to literally explain to these grown people because it literally never occurred to them once in their lives that, you know, when I leave here, gnomes don't come in and make the shoes for me. I have to do it. It's, it's, you know, I'm, the peddler has to make the shoes. People don't come in after I go to bed and make the shoes for me and there's shoes sitting on the counter tomorrow. That's, that's a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. So if you're asking me to do it and, and you're not doing it yourself, by the way, you're not going to go buy a printer and do it yourself. You're asking me to do it. I'm, I'm sacrificing hours of my life to you for X. Then yeah, you're going to pay for it. But a lot of people, again, that's, that's pointing it towards the customer, but point it towards yourself. A lot of people just don't have it in them, um, ethic-wise, attitude-wise, to say, I'm going to stay at work until the work's done. I, there, look, I had nights where I stayed at work until the work was done. And then when the work was done, I had to flip the close sign back to open because it was 7 a.m. I've been there. And if that scares you, then maybe that's not the lifestyle for you. But that's okay. Yeah. It takes it takes all kinds of people, but that's don't but don't be afraid of that, but accept that before you get going. Don't what the worst thing you can do, it's kind of like going to school and dropping out. The worst thing you can do is start some project and sink a bunch into it and then quit. That's the worst thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a and I, I think that that skin in the game where you have already sunk a whole bunch into it is kind of what motivates me personally. Like I, I've got, I've been now paying an edit, an editor for the post work on this podcast mm-hmm. in, in, you know, nominally to save myself time, but in my heart, I know it's because like, I really want this to be become something. I don't want it to be sure. me making, you know, $5 a month or what, whatever it is that, uh, that, that I'm bringing in, which thank you to my supporters for paying for that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's also kind of the competitive advantage that independent entrepreneurs have over the the larger, more corporate entities. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I'll never forget one time, my one of my very first jobs, I was like 16 or 17. I was working at a big box computer store um, back when those were a thing. And this lady came in and she was writing her like master's thesis or something like that. She came mm-hmm. in, it was like eight o'clock at night. She was almost done with it and her computer crashed. And you know, this was the late nineties when a computer crash meant you know, you didn't have Google Drive to to sure. back up your your paper. And God, she was just distraught. And we and she she was most distraught over the fact that we could not provide her with like a loaner laptop. And our advice to her was, look, go to the mom and pop up the street. Like we <laughs> you, we'll 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 fix this for you. It'll take us a couple of days, but in the meantime, you're fucks. Yeah, I well, it it remind me not to use too many analogies from my printing days, because I, I, I can't stress enough that was like a lifetime ago at this sure, point, yeah. that, um, you know, we would get quotes or we would we would give quotes on really big jobs, maybe a job for the school system or for one of the local banks or hospitals. And we got, and we won some of those quotes, but the, it's, it's tough to win a bid that size because you're going to, the bigger it is, the more bigger printers are going to step in and say, well, we want this job and we're yeah. going to, you know, we're going to do it at pennies on the dollar that your poor little presses can can muster. And the only way for me to compete with some of the prices that they're able to get is that my personal labor is basically zero. Mm. And that's tough. That's, that's tough because I mean, you're sitting there crunching the numbers and you're saying to yourself, is it worth it for me to say, cause let, let's say that they've got files and they're not print ready. It's going to take some work and there's going to need to be some editing and some proofs and all that. 
you know, a lot of those big printers, they're not interested in that. They they want you to hire a guy and your guy gives them a, a file and then they click print. That's that's how the big printers work. Mm-hmm. And but they need but the, maybe this particular client needs a little TLC. It's to say, well, look, you need 20 hours of TLC. I'll just donate that to you in exchange for you do this job with me. And and you're sitting there crunching the numbers saying, is it worth it to me for me to work like by the way, this is just a tip to entrepreneurs who are just getting their start. Never calculate what you make per hour. Yeah. Ever do that to yourself. Because you'll because first of all, you'll realize I could I could make more working at McDonald's per hour than I'm <laughs> making right now. But the point is, is you're doing it so that you don't work at McDonald's, right? right. Like you yeah. have to va- you have to, you know, you have to calculate the value, not just in purely in, in terms of dollars. And and definitely not, you know, in your for on your first day. And so you're sitting there thinking, is it worth it to me? To, to put out this much manual labor in exchange for getting this big job and also having my foot in the door with this larger firm. And those are the, you know, that's sacrifices must be made. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. I, and that's, I think that's the appeal of it too, though, for, especially for like, not just libertarians in general, but a certain brand of libertarian. Like, yeah, you might be m- making obviously you're paying for your insurance, you're paying for your own mm-hmm. accounting and all that stuff, but you've got that freedom. You probably would make more or at least at first, obviously going and working for like a competitor in a corporate environment, but who wants to sit in a cubicle all day? Yeah, exactly. What, I mean, if you want to use, you know, recent history as an example, mm-hmm. um, do you not want to be forced to wear, to take a vaccine? Do you not want to have to wear a yeah. mask? What, you know, those are, if those are things that you can't, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm only, I'm only, thir- I'll turn 36 this September. I don't feel like I'm old enough to be giving sage life advice, but um, for a lot of things, it comes down to what you can live with and what you can't live without. And if you can't live, if you, you know, can you live with having to wear a mask in your cubicle? Can you live with having a boss that's, upper management son and he's an idiot out of college that doesn't know half as much as you can you or or can, can you not live without being able to say that what you have was made with your own two hands can you not live without uh being able to set your own schedule and and be able to take off to go see your kids recital or whatever you have to make those decisions for yourself and 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 you know what the nirvana is not meant for this world in mm-hmm. in in life is about trade-offs but if the but if there's certain things that you can't live without or you can't live with and and being able to acquire those things means you're going to have less money in the bank but you can make it work you know how to do a budget then good on you you know more more's the better but you know if you're someone who can't who literally can't go on living unless you're making a quarter million dollars a year and and you can make a quarter million dollars a year uh, planning, planning. You're the the regional vice president of widgets at some company, and the person over you treats you like crap. That's that is the, it's such as the life we've chosen, right? I mean, that's that's for you to decide. Who am I to tell you which one is right or wrong? But I think a lot of people who think like us probably think the former instead of the latter. Do you think your experience as a jazz musician, just kind of given the God, I mean, jazz is kind of the only real musical genre I can think of that has like an underlying philosophy behind it. It's almost, it's almost an anarchist Mm -hmm. musical genre. Do you think that that experience has shaped your, either your worldview as an entrepreneur or your worldview as like just a a libertarian? 
I don't know if I would go so far as to say shape the worldview, but I, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that there wasn't a certain, a certain air of, of confidence in saying that, well, you know, take jazz purely as it pertains to the marketplace. Obviously, jazz is not what's hip with the kids circa 2021. <laughs> True. But far, far less people are providing jazz as a commodity to the musical marketplace. And jazz, in a lot of ways, I mean, one of the many reasons why I love jazz, I mean, jazz is timeless. Like whatever teeny bopper, um, you know, your, your, your sister thinks is awesome in 2015, they're going to be in porn or dead by 2020. Like, come on, dude, it's going to be over. <laughs> and no one's going to remember any songs they ever played. But the, ja- the the standards are called standards for a reason. They've been done by a thousand artists and they're still, they're still very popular today. You, you hear them at weddings or at fine dining establishments. I mean, I'm the type of person that if you said to me, hey, let's, let's, let's go to this cool spot, they have a jazz trio of the place there. I'd be like, oh yeah. man, this is a nice place. This is the kind of place I can hang out at. So there's so it may not be as popular, and there may, but there's far far less people providing that service. Which means, take me as an example. I mean, just going straight to home base. Am I going to be more likely to get a gig somewhere playing jazz? Me being one of like you know twenty people that play jazz in the area, and there's a whopping three places that have jazz music. Or am I more likely to get a job, a gig somewhere playing pop, where there's fifteen million people playing pop music and fifty places accepting pop musicians? Well, jazz is going to get you more reliable work opportunities. True. I mean, if if that's what matters to you, if what matters to you is reliable work opportunities, then. <laughs> But but that's okay though. That's I mean for me that's a reason to appreciate it is for the simple fact that I mean you you can turn on any any manner of TV show or movies or whatever and there's going to be the scene in the ballroom or at the fine dining establishment and they're going to have jazz in the background and people yeah. like it. It's I can't tell you how many times I've been at a show where they said, well, it's a variety show. We're going to have different artists playing different types of music. We want to have a jazz artist, Alan, come do a song or whatever. And I'll go do it. And I, not to just toot my own horn here, I, there'd, be, there'd be musicians in that show way more talented than me. But I'll get a huge standing ovation. Why? Because people love that music. And they, they don't hear it all the time. Where, where am I going to go to go hear Sinatra right now without putting a Sinatra record on? Like, I mean, hear that style of music, but like literally walk out my door and go listen to it. Where am I going to go? Nowhere. You can't find it anywhere. Yeah. So when one, people have the opportunity, it's, it's nice. The one jazz club in the Twin Cities that I can think of recently closed, thanks to, thanks to the governor's COVID restrictions. Of course. And then on the other hand, I mean, Michael Buble has made a career out of doing jazz covers or at least jazz adjacent. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if jazz purists consider him jazz, but he's pretty jazzy. He he does a lot of covers of standards, and so yeah. it would be wrong to say that that's not jazz. But I think the hardcore purists don't like him because, yeah. um, I mean, I and I don't just like jazz. I I like music. I like lots of music. I mean, I'm a huge Eagles fan, which I know Tom Woods was just devastated <laughs> to learn. I'm a big Eagles fan. <laughs> but uh, but use the Eagles as an example. You don't hear a lot of people cover the Eagles. Why? Because the Eagles are the type of band where if you're going to cover them, you'd better be on point. Right. Otherwise, you're going to piss people off. So Buble tends to cover a lot of standards, but he never does them as their original form. He always does his own take on them. And sometimes, sometimes his own take is okay. 
sometimes his own, his own take of, of a standard is kind of like, Ugh, I don't like where he went with that. And so, and, and as, as anyone can tell you, especially in like the, uh, the uh, customer satisfaction part of the world, um, you know, having 10 people say, Ooh, I like that. And one person saying, Oh, that sucks means you failed. Actually, you need, yeah. you need like a hundred to one conversion rate or you're not doing good in customer satisfaction. So that's why you got to be really careful doing standards. I'm i uh, I'm going to see Scott Bradley postmodern jukebox um, in September. Mm-hmm. He's another one that does like, they do, they do jazz covers of like current songs and not just jazz, but you know, they'll do like all the different sub genres of jazz as well, which is, which is a lot of fun in my opinion. So excited for that. Are you the one who, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting if it's you or somebody else. When Tom Woods was asked, like, who's the top tier of libertarian podcasters <laughs> the one that, he, that he named? He did. In yeah. addition to himself so, and Pete. Yeah, he was, so he was talking, they were doing, him and Pete were doing like yeah. an AMA. And, yeah. and the, one of the last questions was, um, kind of like a, there's a bajillion podcasts out there. Who should I get into? And they said the top tier, uh, was the, the people on the show. So, so there's Pete and Tom. And of course, Tom says, so obviously there's, there's Dave Smith. And then he, and he named Michael Malice and he did give the, 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 uh, uh, claimer of, well, Michael Malice isn't really a libertarian. He'll be, yeah. he'll be the first one to tell you I'm not a libertarian, but he, he runs in so many similar social circles. We'll, we'll do an honorable mention, Michael Malice. And then he said, uh, Mark Claire, Lions of Liberty. And he said, Alan Mosley. Which, by the way, when I heard that, I thought he must be confusing me with somebody. <laughs> but it turns out that turns out that was not a mistake on it. Well, it was a, it certainly was a mistake, but he meant to say my name. So yeah. Okay. Well, that was my question to Tom Woods and Pete Q. I had been toying with the idea of starting a podcast for years and years, mm-hmm. and the market got so saturated in 2020 that I was like, "There's no way. There's no way that you know anybody could be successful as a." new up and coming libertarian podcaster. But, you know, Tom gave me the the green light that let me kind of give myself permission to start this show. So in some small part, you contributed to that. So I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Well, you know what? I've, I've told a number of people that like, you know, just, just between, just between us, cause I, I know this will totally not air live, but it will, <laughs> you know, look, 99% of those shows suck. Like yeah. let's call a spade a spade. They're just, they're just terrible. I, I, I tell people all the time, like, I'm so over... First of all, there's no such thing as a liberty movement. Just, just, get, just retire huh. that nonsense language. There's no such thing. There's, there's, and, and why do we want to talk in collectivist terms anyway? We're talking about... Let's talk about individuals. Most of the individuals doing those shows are terrible. And a lot of them are screaming empty platitudes. A lot of the... the these are the... When you have... When you deal in big tents and you try to have movements with people that only have what I like to call a meme-deep understanding of the underlying philosophy... Um, that's how you wind up with your Ron Paul 2012s to your Bernie Sanders 2016 people. That's mm-hmm. how you get there. You you end up getting people who they're really just looking for the outsider. They really just want yeah. the anti-establishment, but they don't really get it. Like they don't really understand any of the philosophy or the principles. And that's how they wind up being for Bernie or Trump, you know, four, six, eight years later. But if you're, I I can't tell you enough that, the, the, it's not all. It's not all doom and gloom, though. A lot of those things are going to be dead and gone in six months, a year, two years. Mm-hmm. But if you're still here and you're being consistent and you've demonstrated to, uh, dare I say, the real libertarians, but if you've demonstrated <laughs> to to the community at large 
that you're somebody who actually has read the material. You understand the arguments. You don't just tell people taxation is theft and, and then you feel like, well, you know, job's done here. Move along, folks. Now, you can actually explain why you believe the things you believe. And that's very important. It's not just because Rothbard said so. That's right. not an argument. You can explain why you believe the things you believe and why you feel like it's it's morally and ethically right and good. If you can do that and you consistently put out a product, you will make it. And I can't tell you if that'll be how long that'll take. I mean, I'm going on four years, so obviously it's longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> but... But but you know what? In that four years, way more shows like quit than than have continued on for four years. I mean, by an enormous margin. And and I'd like to think that something that I'm trying to bring to the table, other than not just constantly being outrage porn, is is I'm trying to demonstrate to people that it's not just a libertarian show. You're right to, to have said that earlier. It's not just about uh, making another libertarian show along with the million other libertarian shows. Maybe it's about making just a good personal piece of content, but maybe you're, maybe you're a good libertarian that just so happens to do a good show. And maybe by doing that, you've shown through example the way to be. And maybe that'll resonate with people more than trying to tell them what a libertarian is. Awesome. Well, let's leave it there. Why don't you go ahead and uh, plug what you got? So so new episodes of It's Too Late with Alan Mosley are every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock Eastern time and then are online in perpetuity on uh, everything is Alan Mosley TV. So if it's Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Odyssey now, uh, Anchor FM, whatever platform you're going to, if you go to, if you go to that platform slash Alan Mosley TV, there you found me. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks a lot. I'll link to at least a couple of those and we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot. Hey, can I ask you one question really quick? Yeah, totally. Is a Pop-Tart a ravioli? Oh, okay. So this is, uh, man, you should have asked me this earlier. This is going to take up the entire seven minutes we have left uh, of our hour. So I come at questions like this using like the D&D alignment chart, the the lawful oh, chaotic. Fantastic. I'm excited. Um, and so the, obviously it, this stems from the, is a hot dog a, a sandwich question. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, there's kind of two things that, that determine this. There's the structure and then there's the ingredients. And a hot dog is to me a true neutral sandwich because like, yeah, it's on a roll, which I think is like the neutral breading of a sandwich. There's like the two pieces of separate bread is the lawful thing and then something beyond a roll. So like, for instance, an Oreo cookie, like those two, the two cookies mm -hmm. is sort of like the chaotic version of the bread. And then the hot dog is kind of a, kind of a strange, but not quite chaotic. So it's true neutral. So is a Pop-Tart a ravioli? It doesn't have a pasta outer layer. Um, that would be flour with egg yolk and maybe like some spinach or something like that as an additive. It's definitely not a pasta outer layer. And it doesn't have a cheese inner layer, which I, I feel like cheese is probably necessary to make something a ravioli. Oh, holy shit. Why did you ask me this on my show? Um, Just so that you can get a preview when you make an appearance on It's Too Late. This is great. now you know what's going to happen. <laughs> All right. It's a chaotic, evil ravioli. Fair. I will accept that. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Alan. Thank you. Talk to you soon.
All right. Thanks again to Alan for joining me today. And thank you, as always, for tuning in. Don't forget to check out PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Look into their pet products and use offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout to get 25% off your order. And if you haven't already, be sure that you head to blackbird.substack.com, sign up with your email address so that you never miss an episode or a piece of written content from me. I think I'm also going to start putting links to when I am the guest on someone else's podcast. So if that interests you, I'll be sending updates via email to my Substack supporters on that. Additionally, I promise you, I've been promising you, premium content is on its way. So if you haven't already signed up for one of the paid options at blackbird.substack.com. Be sure that you do that to get in on the ground floor. You can also support the show by sharing it with your friends. If there is anybody you know who you think would be interested in what I'm doing here, send them the link, blackbird.substack.com. Once again, post it on your Twitter, post it on your Facebook, post it on all of your alternative social networks as well. I really appreciate any publicity that you can give me. And that's a wrap. This is episode number 34 in the can until episode number 35 live free.